Welcome to the News and Views podcast by the Fintech Times. Established in 2016, the Fintech Times is a global multimedia news outlet centered around the world's first leading fintech newspaper. We report on the latest and brightest ideas from the fintech world. Follow the conversation using hashtag TFC News and Views and follow us at the Fintech Times. Hi, I'm Polly Jean Harrison, features editor at the Fintech Times. Hi, I'm Francis Bignall and I'm a journalist at the Fintech Times. Hi, I'm Tyler Smith and I'm a journalist at the Fintech Times. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Fintech Times News and Views. Francis, Tyler, thank you so much once again for joining me today. I don't know what it's like where you are, but it is super miserable outside uh, where I am today after a, a little bit of sunshine. But how are you guys doing? How are you? How is it going? Well, I was treated to do a bit of sunshine on my walk to work uh, this morning, but unfortunately it is very sort of dismal here in London. Um, so I'm very happy to be inside and uh, working on some great fintech stories. Yeah, it's been a good week. What about you, Francis? Yeah, thanks, Tyler. I'm doing really well. Uh, it's, it's sort of similar to you, really. I'm in London, so it's been very bog-standard British weather, I'd say, sort of grey and sort of not raining but also not very warm either it's just about as average as you can get i'd say but i'm very excited to be here to talk some fintech with you guys today and yeah i'm looking forward to the topics cool so what do you guys have to bring to the table this week then what stories have we got francis what are you bringing so this week i'm going to be talking about the tech industry's talent shortage and how it could reach an unrealized output of just under 500 billion globally by 2030 Amazing. And Tyler, what are you going to be talking about? Well, today we're going to be asking the question, would you trust a fintech? These are new figures that have come through and they basically point to increased partnerships between banks and fintechs. So, yeah, it should be a really, uh, really good conversation. What, what have you got in store for us, Polly? Fantastic. That is a super dramatic uh, little intro there, Tyler. I'm excited to hear more about this. Um, and I'm going to be talking about how Klarna has announced it will start reporting its customer data to credit agencies. Uh, quite a big piece of news in the industry, really, and something that we can absolutely sink our teeth into. Uh, but Tyler, you've really drawn me in with your uh, your little summary. So why don't you go first so we can hear more about uh, do you trust fintechs? Well, thank you, Polly. Yes. Well, I always like to make an entrance, as uh, as you all know. Today, I... I want to discuss a piece of information that landed on my desk this week. It was a report from the lovely people at Economist Impact and WSO2. Uh, they've, they've released a sort of joint report. Uh, they've sort of worked in their different elements. Um, so, yeah, we're going to be looking at that report. Basically, what their survey did is it asked uh, the opinions of 300 C-suite executives from banks, right? And it just wanted to gauge sort of what the current climate was in terms of innovation, competition and partnerships. And it surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, 54% of this uh, 300 figure said that they had faced increased competition over the last two years. Now, this is this is hardly surprising. I mean, we've seen the, the fintech space really boom. I mean, if you weren't facing new competition, then... You know, are you really playing the game? So, so they've been facing new competition, but in terms of competing with with other other figures in the industry, eighty four percent, which is actually really really high, eighty four percent of this figure said that they were now equipped, or shall I say, in a better position to compete on 
on a global scale. They had some of them cited that they had developed new tools, new services, new techniques. And honestly, I mean, it would be foolish of me to to tell you about all of these services because we 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 discuss them every week. But there's new services that are allow, allowing them to compete. What's what's interesting, however, though, is that only twelve percent said that they had in, faced increased competition from fintechs. Now, this is really interesting. Do incumbent banks see fintechs as competitors? Well, according to this survey, 12% of them do. But in my personal opinion, I think that there is a much higher percentage of competition coming from fintechs in the industry. However, what it does show, and they, they actually, this is from their report last year, this 2021 report, which I looked into. And they said that 48% of these banks had partnered with fintechs. Now, what's really interesting, and I couldn't help, when I, when I was writing this, I couldn't help but thinking of challenger banks, Polly, that we, we very much covered uh, last month in April. We did a brilliant coverage on that. But one of our articles from there was, was talking about the benefits of partnerships. Now, I'm not going to go on forever. I'm just going to close what I'm saying with, with one of these very short quotes from that article, which was, what, which was from Vinay Prabhakbar of Volante Technologies. And basically what Vinay said was uh, that the benefits are clear as they are in the tech world, increased value for customers, greater revenue, higher market share, but also cooperation has to be done right. Good partnership structures will create more than the sum of their parts. Bad structures will destroy value. So I'm going to pass this back over to you guys now. And I just want to know what your current stance is on on fintechs partnering with banks and vice versa. And what you see as the main benefits to such an arrangement. I'm going to sneak in on this one because um, Kylie, you're absolutely right. This is something that we have looked at quite a lot um, recently with our Challenger Bank focus and the idea of competition uh, the portmanteau of cooperation and competition uh, between, you know, challenger banks or, you know, fintechs with the regular traditional financial institutions. And it's something that we have looked into quite a little bit. So if you are interested, definitely go check out our website and, and read all our previous articles on it. But I think, you know, this idea of collaboration within the industry is something that we're going to see completely even more of. You know, fintechs have made themselves uh, very what's the right word? Valuable, I guess. Is that is that the right word? Uh, valuable to sort of, you know, tech companies really trying to be better. As as we've always said, you know, the, the one problem, not the one problem, but a problem with traditional banks and traditional financial institutions is that they are very slow to change. You know, they've been going for hundreds of years and trying to take on change and new technology and new ideas is often quite difficult for them because they're, you know, sort of stuck in these incumbent style processes whereas what a fintech can do is that a fintech or you know challenger bank or whatever kind of new challenger company they can come in and they can they can almost change things at the drop of a hat you know they're very small they're agile and they're quick and they're quick on the innovation and they can really just take up things very quickly so that's kind of the key i think to these sort of partnerships between banks and fintechs is because, you know, we are in a digital age now, things have moved on digital, even before the pandemic, 
that's where things were heading. We're in a super innovative time within the financial sector and some banks perhaps are maybe struggling to keep up. However, by partnering with fintechs, they can really just ramp up their competition within the sector, change their processes, change their products, change their services for the better, but do it in a quicker way through these partnerships. And they don't have to worry too much about building it themselves because they're working with the fintechs and they can bring it in right away. So I think that is, you know, the super key thing here is that it's it's a good thing for everyone having these partnerships. We're getting new services to consumers, getting new solutions to consumers and the things that they're asking for, as we've said before, you know, consumer demand, customer demand, it's super important within finances, especially something like banking. And by partnering with these fintechs, you know, they're just opening themselves up to an even bigger audience and letting themselves keep up with the innovative fintechs, which is just making the market better for everyone. So yeah, it's just, it's something that's not going to stop. It's something that's going to carry on going. It's just kind of inevitable for the fintech and finance industry at the moment. I, I absolutely agree with everything that you've said, but before I have like a closing argument, I'd really love to know what you think, Francis. Yeah, cheers, Tyler. I think it, I think Polly's covered sort of all the basic points really. I Going into this, I wanted to make sure that we discuss competition because, as as you sort of mentioned, it's impossible to analyse the impact fintechs have had without analysing competition and this idea of sort of working together whilst also competing at the same time. It's that sort of bizarre nature that's evolved in the, the fintech sphere. But I think the pandemic has really catalyzed everything to improve the consumer experience. And I think at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. Only 12% of the of the, the big banks and financial uh, institutions really saw fintechs as a competition. And I think that's because they're the ones that are adopting the new technology and are able to use it. And I feel like their customer base, if they wanted that sort of technology immediately, they would have jumped boat already. They would have, they would have swapped to the new provider. So I think it sort of shows this idea of first, customer loyalty to brands. So long as the brand is innovating at a pace that works for the consumer, which clearly is the case if only 12% are saying they feel threatened to an extent, I guess you could interpret it as. So I think all in all, it's it's just a wonderful sort of time to be in in the fintech sphere because everyone's benefiting. The the incumbents are finally catching up to the new tech waves that are, are happening because it's needed. It's not a case of wanting to or not. It's a necessity to survive. And I think that's really important to to understand. I mean, yeah, you're you're both bang on the money there. And this is a this is a topic that we could discuss all day, I I really do reckon. I think in in my closing statement, I think one thing that we're really gonna have to look out for from these partnerships is how banks are using the resources that fintechs have. And you've both outlined that perfectly in what you've just said. I think you, you know, and we're going to touch on this a little bit later with what you're going to talk about, Francis, but t- talent is is becoming really quite scarce in the industry that we, li- that we work in, we live in, basically. And I think that that is going to be one of the major elements that these banks are looking at when, when they're partnering with fintechs. So we'll have to see. Um, but maybe on, on that note, it would be good to, to go over to what you're discussing, Francis. Yeah, it's a seamless transition there, Tyler. Thank you very much. So the article that I wanted to discuss today comes from the Corn Ferry Institute, 
who analyzed that by 2030, the tech industry labor skill shortage will reach 4.3 million workers and an unrealized output of $449.7 billion globally. Therefore, companies should seek to prioritize international growth and that the Baltic countries are considered a hub for tech talents. So sort of as you said, uh, Tyler, as we're looking to for banks and financial institutions trying to improve their services, the way that you do this is by getting good talent, good workers, talent who, or sorry, that that is showing innovative uh, mindsets and who are trying to improve on the on the current offering. And I think this is something that has always been the case in sort of every sector. You need the best talent to, to succeed. So some stats from the uh, that Corn Ferry, the Corn Ferry Institute found were that the US can expect to lose out on 162.25 billion by 2030 due to sector skill shortages. China could fail to generate 44.45 billion by the same date due to the same problem. And that Great Britain will fail to realize almost 9% of its technology, media and telecommunications sector's potential revenue due to the same problem of skill shortages. Historically, Scandinavian countries have been sort of a saving grace. Countries like Sweden, they would always provide extremely good talent for for the for these bigger countries or, or bigger uh, markets, I should say. However, this is now starting to, to dwindle. The numbers are, aren't there like they used to be. And a lot of and what the Corn Ferry Institute was arguing was that the Baltic countries could now fill in this shortage. What I really want, I wanted to throw it to you guys early, really, because one of the key things that the article discusses is the importance of remote working to open up a world of new talent. And when I think of remote working, I think of, well, I'm in the same country, I'm working from home. But, you know, the, the company is maybe sort of a city away. The idea of working for a company that's in a whole other country is kind of, I almost want to say a little bit bizarre and sort of hard to comprehend because historically it hasn't been such a big thing. There's always been this idea of the big CEOs and COOs and whatever C-suite you want to look at moving to the country they're going to work in, but that isn't going to be a thing now. So I really wanted to discuss with you guys the importance of remote working for expansion and talent retention and sort of what impact could it really have? Uh, Tyra, I'll go to you first. Well, I think this is, this was a really fantastic article to discuss, and I think it's it's very very relevant from from what I've seen. Just checking the the editor inbox this morning, I mean, we had so many stories come in about how to source talent. I I think if there's been one benefit from the pandemic that we've really seen is this sort of rising attitude of remote working and and how companies are able to source beyond borders, beyond beyond like international restrictions. I mean, if a few years ago, if you wanted to bring in somebody who was working in India and you wanted to bring them into a UK company, there was legislation and red tape to overcome to do that. And I think that it sort of opened uh, a whole new way of, of working and of operating. I think in terms of where the talent is coming from and especially the 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 regional availability that you touched upon i think that there's so many different elements that go into to talent growth and talent accumulation i mean it, it, 
you know, how are people being trained? What are the companies like in that in that country? What are what's the the exposure to fintech? What's the adoption rate? What are the universities doing? What are the schools doing? You know, there's there's a lot of different elements here, and I think it's a very exciting time. I even here, you know, at the fintech times, we we have sourced people from all over the world, and it's it, it's worked perfectly, really. Um, and yeah, I think it's I think it's a very exciting time. But Polly, what what's your thoughts here? Yeah, I completely agree with everything you said, really, Tyler. You know, if there's one thing that the pandemic has proved, as you said, is that you can work from anywhere. I mean, obviously, you know, Francis, you were saying how working uh, remotely, you kind of think at least in the same country with me. Obviously, you guys are down in London, the head office is in London, but I'm up in the countryside in Shropshire. So that's worked out really nicely for me. But then if that's the case, you know, yeah, it makes sense as to why why can't you work from anywhere else? And there's loads of benefits, I think, to the companies itself, you know, themselves, I should say. One of my uh, friends a few years ago uh, got a job offer and moved to, I think it was Sweden, actually, now that you mention it. Um, so, and, you know, the company paid for his travel, they paid for his accommodation, you know, they pay for his flat, they pay, I think, a, a small stipend as well for their living expenses and things like that. But now you wouldn't have to do that you wouldn't have to pay to move someone to your country. You can just post them a laptop and give them a login and then let's go. And I think that is going to be super key, particularly to the smaller startups who maybe don't have as much capital um, and things like that, because they are now going to be able to access this talent that, as we've all said, you know, that they need. And people are what makes things run. You know, I know we have a huge influx of tech. We have a huge influx of automation nowadays but at the end of the day it's all about the people and it's about the people that are creating that tech and to do that you need to have the best people but and what's beautiful about the pandemic is that you can literally go from anywhere anyone can work for anything if they've got the skills and the talent that that company needs which i think is you know pretty cool so the like you said francis the talent shortage um and this whole like, idea of great resignation and things like that it's somewhere that's happening, not just in fintech, not just in finance, but all over the globe in a million different sectors. So I, I, I would be interested to see if anything else sort of springs up as a, as a response to that, as a sort of problem solver to that, other than remote working, hiring from anywhere. But, you know, I think as we move on and move out of this sort of weird post-pandemic kind of still in the pandemic stage that we're all in at the moment as things progress i think this idea of remote working is just going to become even more commonplace to the point where i do think everyone will be remote working to be honest with you and we'll all be working for companies halfway across the globe because why not i mean i think that's is it's really great this idea that it, you can really be working anywhere i think it's a really really cool idea that i could be working for a country in south america Tyler, you could be working for some a country in Asia, and Polly, you could be working for a country in Europe. Do you know what? It like we'd all be in the same room, but working all across the globe. And I think this it really creates this idea of. I mean, we always talk about it in this idea of having different people from different backgrounds, I guess, and this idea of uh, inclusion that it really helps develop the best ideas because you have a, an array of people coming in with different sort of backgrounds different reasons for believing things and then that's how you get the best innovative ideas because you don't all come from the same place looking at the for the same thing and i think one of the interesting stats from the article was that there 
according to Diana, I'm going to butcher her surname here, Blazentine, the CEO at uh, Soprano Personnel International, there was an over 35% more inquiries uh, looking for IT specialists in Lithuania and Latvia from Scandinavian and German companies in recent months. And I think it's really interesting that they're going for these Baltic countries because there's a whole different sort of background there that they're going to be able to incorporate into their own companies. And there's going to be this idea of, as we've sort of said, this idea of bringing in good talent and making sure it sticks. But also some somebody that says some, if, if one of your colleagues from a different region says something to you, that's going to stick and you're going to be able to pass that on to the next person and the next person. And it creates this really, really good chain reaction that I think leads to more innovation in the sector. So I think it is just an incredible thing that the pandemic has created this irreversible change on the idea of remote working in the sense that you don't need to be in a country to work for a, for a certain company anymore. And it really does create, it opens up so many more doors. And I think that's a really, really good thing, not only in fintech, but in every industry, really. And yeah, so I think it's it's something to, to look out for, to see how it changes and continues to improve over the next couple of years, especially as the pandemic or the initial impacts of the pandemic continue to wear off. But as you said, Polly, I, I think they'll get to a time where everyone's remote working. And I can't see that being a bad thing, if I'm being honest, so long as um, the option to go into the office is there, because I mean, lonely to be working in your, your bedroom all the time. But I, I think it's, it's a really good idea. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what happens. And on that note, Polly, if you'd like to take us over to your article. Sure thing. Thank you very much. So what I wanted to talk about this week, uh, big news uh, earlier in May, Klarna announced that they are now going to be reporting their customer data to credit agencies, specifically Experian and TransUnion. Um, So basically, they're going to be advising to the agencies who pays on time for their buy now, pay later products and who, you know, falls behind on their debt. So potential lenders will be able to see transactions and debts when checking consumer credit scores. Um, And this move has the potential to both help and hinder Klarna's customers' ability to successfully apply, you know, for things like loans and mortgages and anything else you might need a credit score for. So this was quite big news, at least in my opinion, anyway. And I think this is really important. I'm going to have a lot of implications on sort of the rest of the industry and how the buy now, pay later industry moves forward. So as we all know, obviously, buy now, pay later, hugely popular, booming, you know, it's it's the payment product currently for the, the generic consumer, I think. Um, but one of the sort of bigger criticisms of buy now, pay later is that, you know, is it safe? Are we getting people specifically, you know, younger people? Do they understand the implications of taking on a buy now, pay later product? Will they fall into debt? Will they fall behind on payments? And what effects will that have? Should they not use this product correctly? What effects will that have on their finances in the future? And so, you know, one of the criticisms of Buy Now Pay Later was the fact that even though it is, you know, a lending product in, you know, most ways, that it wasn't being reported to credit agencies, you know, they had no effect on your credit score. Whereas when you take out a credit card, that's all done via credit checks, credit scores, it's all reported. If you fall behind in payments on your credit card, that's noted on your credit score and will affect it. Whereas until now, that didn't happen on Buy Now Pay Later. So to give you a little bit more background on the Klarna move, it's basically a result of two years of talks with Experian and TransUnion, um, and it will be 
begin to report these consumer purchases when they've been paid on time or late payments or unpaid purchases for their pay in 30, pay in three orders, sorry, their pay in 30 and their pay in three products. And these will be made on or after the 1st of June 2022, which will likely have an effect on scores from late 2023 because it usually takes about 18 months for the things to sort of kick in when it comes to credit scores uh so yeah i think this is brilliant i think it really does kind of qualm a lot of my concerns around buy now pay later and like actually genuinely it does make me want to use klarna more because it can have a good thing you know one of the best ways to build up credit and especially considering buy now pay later is very much kind of catering specifically towards perhaps the younger generations the 20 somethings the gen z um one of the best ways to build up credit quickly and easily is by making lots of small purchases and paying them back on time or paying them back quickly via a credit card so there's no reason that this can happen with buy now pay later you know you make a couple of small purchases via buy now pay later you pay them back on time it's all hunky-dory and then you get a nice bit of you know credit score bumping out of it perfect Obviously, though, that does depend on everyone using the service correctly. So if you make late payments, if you miss payments, if you get into you know debt with Klarna, um, then obviously it's going to have a negative effect on your credit score, which I'm sure some people would be put off by using Klarna with. But I think just in the long run, this is really going to be so helpful to the industry. And I think it's going to help build the credibility of the industry as well, because then there's a lot of, you know, a lot of conversations currently on the regulation and compliance about buy now pay later and what these governments and watchdogs are going to do. So I think Klan is sort of taking this step forward now while it's not being asked of them, if that makes sense, is you know super huge. And I do think other buy now pay later providers will be following suit very, very soon. Um so I've talked a lot. So I'll let you guys say something. Uh, Francis, what do you think? I I kinda wanna just echo what you've said really. I think there's two ways to really look at this because is it, it's a good thing at the end of the day, I think, because as you mentioned, people now have a way to improve their credit scores without having to use a credit card, without having to make these huge purchases, just their little day-to-day things all start to reflect quite well now. And it's, I don't see that ever being a bad thing because, I mean, if you, if you want to improve your credit score, sort of just buying something from ASOS suddenly can do that for you. And I think if you know you're going to be able to pay that off, I mean, the majority of people I'd like to say do, then why not? It's going to reflect well on you. It's not just a, a, a debit purchase, essentially, uh, over time. It's, it's it's now got a good reflection. I do wonder, though, if it starts to undo a lot of the what Buy Now Pay Later originally stood for, which is this it isn't credit thing. Like, a lot, I know that as as people in fintech and sort of, people who are a little bit more experienced, we know that buy now, pay later is a form of credit. It's just not labeled as such. But I think for a lot of people, there was a nice differentiation in the sense that I can use buy now, pay later and not worry about a credit score whatsoever. And it's probably a bad way to go into it, looking at it that way, to say that, oh, if I don't pay it off, it's not going to negatively impact me. But there was sort of this safety net under it, underlining everything that was, it won't impact you. That isn't the case anymore, and it suddenly is becoming this more, I guess it's almost like a more regulated thing now, that it will have a longer impact or a bigger impact on you should you not use it responsibly. That brings us on to the question of financial education, which, I mean, we could talk about for ages. But I think all in all, any way that you can reflect credit in a good way, 
is a positive thing. And if that's what buy now, pay later change in, or sorry, what Klarna's change is going to do, then I think it's a good thing. Yeah, that's a really interesting um, point you brought up there, Francis, about sort of the using of buy now, pay later with that safety net. I think what's important to say is that even before this announcement, if you miss payments on buy now, pay later, it did have a negative effect on you. So if you did just completely miss payments, then you would be referred to sort of debt collection agencies. Um, I believe I'm, I'm paraphrasing. It's like I can't remember the exact parameters of it. Um, and also, you know, it would have a negative effect eventually on your credit score if you missed enough payments sort of thing. So it, there, there is still that layer of risk, I guess. I feel it was more from like your your day to day person who would who wouldn't know, for example, that if they missed it, it would impact their credit score. Because a lot there was this weird representation that cre- but BNPL was completely different to credit. There was this idea that the two were two separate entities, which isn't necessarily true. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that the the buy now pay later companies really did sort of push. I know Klarna did a campaign on. I can't remember what the campaign was called now, but it was how Buy Now Pay Later was better than credit. And I guess there are arguments to be made in that front, you know, like Buy Now Pay Laters are, you know, done on purchase specific. So you apply per each purchase rather than just here's a credit card, go spend what you want. So there are a lot of differences in that way. And actually, we did do an article about whether Buy Now Pay Later is better for you than credit cards. So go check that out on the Finder Times website, little cheeky plug there. Uh, Tyler, let's bring you in. What do you think? I think that this is a really, really good move. I understand that lenders have to mitigate risk and they have to identify people who don't pay on time and who aren't trustworthy people to lend to. I I do think that it's good. It's sort of like a passive way almost, if you are a big user of buy now, pay later services, to, to boost your, your credit score. And I think I, th- I think sometimes we see that that buy now pay later systems are more for people who have limited income but actually this is completely upended by a recent report that i received uh on wednesday which was about it was from a company called amount which said that 84% i think it was 84% of gen oh sorry of millennials using buy now pay later services in the us actually had an income of over $100,000 a year. So, you know, the money is there and people do want to use these services for whatever reason. And I think that it's a really good way for A, people to improve their credit score, which is obviously, you know, a very good thing. And for, for, to, for B, for, for banks to, to mitigate risk and identify people much easier. So I, I, I can see why they did this move. I, I think it might be seen as slightly controversial that they are sort of selling their data but at the end of the day if if you're using Klarna you're you are giving them permission to collect your data and it is then something that they own so it goes to show the importance of data and especially how it can be used and applied uh yeah I I think this is a really good really good um move by Klarna yeah it's quite interesting yeah, I think just I, I think selling data is is slightly inaccurate. It's just more reporting on the data. You know, it's not necessarily yeah. It was, it, off. It's it was just, a bad it was a bad word from from me. To yeah, use. yeah. Just 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 for the record, they're not. Yeah, they weren't selling reporting anything. on the data. Um, but I think yeah, just 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 in sort of closing, I think the key thing to take away here is that as with any financial product or service, it's all about how you use it. If you use it correctly, then you get the full benefits of it. If you use it incorrectly. And unfortunately, you will sort of 
pay the price for that and that's just kind of the way it is and the way it is for everything particularly with buy now pay later so yeah it's all just about like we say financial education using products correctly and getting the the best benefit of them but anyway let's move very swiftly on to what i learned this week so each week so much news and information crosses our desk about the fintech world that we as the editorial team are constantly learning new things all the time so we thought it would be fun to share that with you all. So, Francis, what did you learn this week? We didn't think I could go a podcast without talking about crypto now, did we? Of course, of course I had to bring it up at some point. So what I learned this week is that sort of a reminder of the crypto market's volatility. There has been a huge crash in which over 98% of Terra Luna, the cryptocurrency, has uh, collapsed overnight. And it's I've seen many sort of people talk on forums about how they've now lost everything. They're going to have to sell their homes and it's just not an ideal situation to be in. So what I learned this week is really just a reminder of the cryptocurrency, the crypto markets uh, volatility and how you really can't just bet everything on, on one crypto because overnight, as, as shown here by Terra Luna, it could all go wrong. It could all go wrong. Fantastic. Thank you, Francis. Uh, Tyler, what did you learn this week? Thank you, Polly. Yes, so this week I learned a new term, which is called IT ticketing, which is essentially, I thought it was like physical tickets. No, it's not. It's it's like data that signifies, A, what IT departments have to do, and B, what they've already done. And I got a really interesting report, which sort of linked a bit into our RegTech focus, last week, which stated that technology and new technologies are sort of fusing with with regulatory systems. And the report that I got on ticketing actually specifically mentioned the use of bots and chatbots and how they had sort of freed up the capabilities of these IT departments. So it's a really interesting time. And again, you know, new technology, new new sector, and it's, it's, it's going really well. What about you, Polly? Amazing. Thank you, Tyler. And yeah, what I learned this week is that the IT solutions provider CGI is bringing an escape room style experience to Cardiff to educate people and businesses about cybersecurity risks, as well as teach them how to deal with these risks. And I just thought, what a brilliant idea. You know, everyone loves an escape room. Everyone loves, you know, having having a bit of fun like that and tying it into a cybersecurity based escape room to help people, you know, learn and really just boost the education i thought was brilliant uh, apparently it's going to be traveling around the country it's currently in cardiff at the time of recording and it's in a shipping container so it'll be moving around so i will definitely be checking it out if it ends up anywhere near me and i encourage everyone else to as well this is not an ad i just think it's funny and hilarious and brilliant and such a fantastic idea um, but anyway, thank you so much uh, for listening. That's another News and Views podcast over and done with. If you want to hear more on any of the stories we've talked about today or anything else about the fintech world, head on over to our website, thefintechtimes.com. Tyler, Francis, as always, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk about fintech with you. Uh, thank you so much for joining me and I'll, I'll see you next week. Thank you so much, guys. See you next week. As always, extremely enjoyable. See you guys next week. Thanks for listening to the News and Views podcast by the Fintech Times. Don't miss next week's episode and continue the conversations using hashtag TFT News and Views and follow us at The Fintech Times.